0: Welcome! Welcome! Welcome back to Love's Labour's Watch everyone. As always I'm Helena and I'm Francesca. We are two 20-somethings, we're both from London and we basically chat about pop culture and welcome back. We've been on a slight
1: hiatus. How is everyone? You good Francesca? I am yeah I'm very excited to be back particularly because I think this is a I'm say a classic episode. I mm. feel like that's quite a bold statement, <laughs> but it's definitely going to be a great episode. We yes. have an amazing author interview mm-hmm. and we are talking about one of our favorite artists. You can probably guess who guess that is. Who. And what you can expect from this episode is our
0: author interview coming up first, and then we're going to have some general chat about that mystery artist <laughs> uh,
1: who you probably know who it is. Uh, without further ado, In this episode, we are speaking to author Meg Mason, mm-hmm. who wrote the global best selling kit Sorrow and Bliss. Meg is a journalist. You may have seen her work in Vogue, the Financial Times, the New Yorker. And she's also written a couple of other books in the past, which you may have come across. Mm -hmm. And Sorrow and Bliss is hard to describe. I think the title sums it up really well. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. It's basically about a woman who has reached this kind of crossroads in her life. She's in her early 40s, she's married and her marriage is kind of falling apart and she's dealing with some kind of mental illness that she's never really been able to get a handle on in terms of what it is Mm -hmm. or how it's impacting her life. And it's basically her story And we delve deep into her life and her family, her interactions, and we just follow through that story. Mm -hmm. We had a fascinating chat with Meg Mason about the book, about the themes, about the characters, about the ideas, how she wrote it, the structure of the novel, all the good stuff. And Yeah, I think we should dive right in. A little warning, we do discuss in kind of quite vague terms, the ending of the book. There should be a a spoiler warning in the podcast notes telling you the time code. But yeah, in in general, this is a pretty spoiler-free discussion. But if you want to go in completely fresh, we really recommend that you read Sorrow and Bliss yourself and then listen to the episode.
0: All right, let's go. Let's go. Cue the music.
2: How are you? Good.
0: How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, real. Well, first of all, for anyone who may, who are listeners who may have not read the book, could you give us like a spoiler free as much as possible, a summary of your book, Sorrow and Bliss?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, It's a love story about a couple called Martha and Patrick, who are um, about to separate when we meet them. So it's a sort of anti-love story in that sense. Um, And they've been married for a long time. They've known each other since they were teenagers. But the sort of axis that the story turns on is the fact that Martha, who's now 40, has been living with this undiagnosed mental illness for sort of 20 years um, and feeling very much that it, you know, is at the centre of who she is, that it defines who she is, but she doesn't know what it is. So it's the sort of mystery that she's been trying to solve. And by the time we meet her, she would sort of say that it's essentially annihilated, you know, her life and put her on this course that um, is so opposed to the course of life that her sister her beloved sister Ingrid has lived and there's sort of this comparing contrast that she puts forward about this is what I would have had this is the life I would have had and the relationships I would have had in the career if you know what she describes as a little bomb had never gone off in her brain when she was 17 so um it sounds bleak <laughs> but hopefully there's some redeeming humor in there as well um because I don't think we'd want to read a book quite so bleak if it didn't have lighter moments in it.
1: Yeah. Oh, definitely. I think it, yeah, it's very much infused with that warmth and you know those contrasts that yeah are inherent to human existence I guess (laughs) Um, but we wanted to ask you a bit about the inspiration behind the book and the writing process we've heard you say that it it was quite an organic process um, and the book was kind of pouring out of you in some ways but you weren't always sure if it was going to turn into something that you wanted to publish and you wanted to see out in the world so yeah we wondered if you could speak a bit about that
2: absolutely it it was, I mean, I always have loathed it when I hear authors say, oh, it was just pouring out. I'm like, why would you tell us that? You know, we're here toiling and we're trying to chip this block of marble with our fingernails. And it's like, I don't want to hear that your book was pouring out. It was only pouring out because nothing had poured out for a year preceding that. So if there was any extent to which it was easy, it was because the preceding year had been so hard. Um, that year I'd produced a book that I knew i I didn't want to publish, um, but it took me a year to both write it and accept that I was never going to be able to publish it. Um, So I took a break in the middle, did some quite intensive Christmas ruining weeping for everyone um thinking that you know that this was all sort of lost um Love's labours was very much lost um but then you know then I just began again but it wasn't to redraft it and it wasn't to write another novel it was just to sit down and be I suppose with words and because you know that's just the only thing I know like I don't do anything else I don't have anything else in terms of a career that's the only thing I have and so I couldn't just stop really, but the the battering that I had, well, you know, given myself um, over the previous year and the amount of self-esteem and sort of self, you know, um, confidence that I'd lost through writing a whole failed novel, um, it took quite a while to build that back up again. And so it wasn't like I wanted to throw myself into a new book because I had very, you know, I'd lost my confidence. I didn't feel like I had anything to say, but I suddenly was having fun within that you know, that idea that no one would see it. Mm. And so it did just start to pour out, but something completely different. So Sorambliss is really different from anything I've written before. Um, And when I did show it to my publisher, after sort of five or six months, I said, I know you can't publish this one either, because it's a bit, it's just a bit odd. You know, it's quite Mm. this intense story, but told with this really prosaic language, like really quite flat and economical, which I really liked. And I think it carries the novel because if I was trying to be poetic or deep or, you know, literary, we, I don't think, again, we couldn't stand that story. It would just be mm. too much if Martha was sort of waxing on all the time. So I showed it to her and she she did go away for a few days and go very silent so I was like oh good I was right she hates it yeah. and then she came back and she said I just didn't know what I was looking at for the first you know because she was so acquainted with the previous book and there were some names and things carried forward and some settings so she thought we were going to get a redraft of that and then she was looking at her and she's like what has she done mm-hmm. and she she is blessedly conflict averse as am I so she didn't want to have that conversation <laughs> so she just waited she's like I'll oh, just I'll just delay that. And then she totally contests all the facts of this story, but I'm holding to it. Um, She just waited for a little while. And then she's like, I'll just read it one more time and was able, I guess, then to see it within itself and fresh eyes and things like that. And she was like, oh, this is just something, it's just kind of an evolution. But she did say to me, Once you've done this, you've kind of passed through the Rubicon and there's no going back to sort of just general women's commercial fiction, you know, which is where I was located before. And I was like, yes, let's do it. Let's just go through that Rubicon and never return. So that is how it feels. And it was still really hard work and a lot of hours, but it was pleasant, which is just what I needed because I just don't know what I would have done if Mm. I had have stopped where I thought I was stopping. I don't know what I'd be doing now. Um, Slightly makes me shudder to think.
0: Yeah absolutely I think it's yeah it's really interesting that you mentioned sort of the tone of the book or the the voice of the book being quite like candid and sort of direct and I think um, you know the book itself you know it's quite a warm and comforting book and read even if it delves into sort of like quite tough tough realities especially for your main character in terms of human relationships and mental health and stuff Um, and again that candidness is kind of you know, allowing that to come through, even if perhaps you wouldn't expect it to be so. And you mentioned that your publisher was probably a bit shocked. Um, (laughs) And was this, I mean, can you just delve into that a bit more about like kind of where that candid voice kind of came from and perhaps why is it so important to the novel? And was it something you were aware you were doing or did it sort of turn up?
2: Well, it's funny, actually. I would never have got there without that false start slash false end. the reason that came about like that was because one of the things I was grappling with was that I kept repeating myself as in producing a poor man's version of what I'd done before with my first mm-hmm. novel, which is called You Be Mother. And it's perfectly, you know, it's a sweet first novel, um, but I didn't want to do it again. And I didn't want to do a worse version. Yeah. Um. And that was told in the third person. And I realized that if I switched to first person, you simply can't repeat yourself because the form is so different. Suddenly you've got one character who has to be in every scene, you know, all of those sort of technical things that occur. So, and then as soon as I did that, it was combined with the fact that I needed to steer away from, you know, everything I'd done as I was panicking the previous year was to get more intense and more wordy and more metaphorical and grander. And so I made myself abandon that. And the, sort of, the rule or the guideline was, just say, just let Martha say what happened the way, you know, she, she needs to be able to speak in a way that she would speak to us, you know, because what I wanted her to feel like, excuse me, I'm a makeup Um, It's very early in the morning. Can we say that for our (laughs) sisters to give? It is, yeah. Very early. Later for us. Yeah. Sneaking sips of coffee in between answers. But she, you know, obviously, Mother's been sort of um, called unlikable, but I wanted to feel, I wanted you to feel like she was your most difficult friend. Mm, So even though she can be atrocious, you just love her deep down and you put up with all sorts of things because you know that she's sort of good despite the dreadful behavior that she occasionally, you know, demonstrates. But that meant that she needed to be able to talk in a way that was sort of almost um, sort of the way I could never talk as an author about mental illness. So she needs to be able to say, there's something wrong with me. You know, we couldn't we couldn't describe mental illness that way. And so it just started to find her voice and to have her telling her story very flatly and straightly as though she could text you the entire thing you know Mm -hmm. as though we're Ingrid and we're just talking because we don't talk in those florid terms to each other you know Mm -hmm. like that would just be exhausting and so I think once I struck on that then I felt like I suddenly knew who she was and the way that she was going to tell and that was definitely the key and um, so yeah so I think it's interesting because I'd never written in the first person before and I know that lots of authors sort of, you know, we seem to maybe have a, one that we prefer or lean to, mm. but it's so interesting to try a different one. So I'm, I am wonder what I'll do next time because I'd be horrified to repeat Sarah and Bliss. Yeah. Um, so I'll have to, I don't know what's left, Omniscient 3rd or something, you'll have to tell me.
1: Yeah, well, I think on that note about, you know, the voice, one of the things that we really liked about the book is the way that you balance humour and lighthearted moments with, obviously the tougher realities of the book and both those tones are equally as strong and feel very true to life and that you might have a moment where something really difficult is happening but you can still find the humor in it or as you were saying you might text a friend and bring out more of the humorous side in the story so we wondered how did you go about creating that duality did it come naturally and was it just a consequence of the tone that you adopted or was it something you were kind of working at bringing into the book? Mm.
2: Well, I think it's definitely a product of the freedom that I felt because Martha makes jokes about mental illness that we could never make. um, But they're her jokes to make, you know. And so, but again, that was because I didn't think anyone would see it. I don't think I would have been so blasé about let's write a, you know, hilarious book with lots of jokes about mental illness in it. Like you could never bring yourself. But um, I think it's probably just on some level, it's intrinsic to deal with things that way, as night that's how I would deal with things as a person. I've also kind of in my career as a journalist tended towards writing humor and things like that. So it was a practice thing. But I think I think rather than trying to, you know, sort of actively soften it for this imagined reader and thinking, oh, I've just dealt with a scene where she's feeling very low. I better put some jokes in. Mm. Um, I was never that conscious. I just think it's the way that we all contain the most dreadful things in life you know you don't you generate to make these stories bearable to yourself or to friends I think you package them as dark humor you know the sort of gallows humor and I, I honestly think that's just how we all you know relate to each other because things are too painful to just expressly say aren't they especially when you're in the throes of them you know you can't you haven't processed it's actually not funny yet and yet somehow you know, the human inclination is to make it bearable by making it funny. And, you know, the whole sort of function of gallows humor is to contain these things that we're so terrified of, but we feel like if we can make a joke of them, then we actually are in control of them. You know, we have some sort of power and we're showing that we can survive and we can contain these things. So I think that's why, and obviously as I got towards the end of the process and I did know that it was going to be published, my publisher and I sort of went through and we're like, oh, we could do with an, with a little break here and we could, Puppet, you know because it's quite vignetti and there are those little moments mm. often when Martha's interacting with her beloved nephews and so it was good to just keep those going through it because I think I, I was conscious of like I'm asking a lot of of readers you know, to persist with me and to go right down into the depths with me so I do have to give you a rest <laughs> so that's that's where some of that worked out but also all my favorite books kind of um, you know um, employ that um, yeah. I guess the combination of the humor and the pathos yeah and is that kind of where the title sorrow and bliss
0: kind of came from those dualities was that something that you know once you looked at the book at the end you were like ah you know that's a title that would work with it
2: yeah I think do you know what's so funny by the time you get to the end you never remember when those revelations were had like I don't I know it was titled really early Mm. I know it, it had a title long before any of my other books you know, did, and there was never, a, there was never an alternative, you know, sometimes you present a shortlist, and you and your publisher will kind of think this, and what about this one, and you try them out, but when I first filed it to her, in it's very early first draft, you know, sort of however many months in, it was already called that, and there was never a conversation about it, but again, I don't remember, The day that I decided, I don't even remember the day that mental health presented itself in the text. It just was suddenly there, and you know, it's two years on really now since I was writing it. So it just feels like it always was. Um, Hmm. But I don't know. It's the same as the little bits that in any novel, I think, you know, there's a part. um, Martha has a friend for a season, a much older chappy called Peregrine, and there's a part where he talks about the the genuine Greek definition of nostalgia. And I don't even know where I heard that or how I knew it. And I look back on it now and think, what happened that day that I, you know, I must have read it somewhere. But it all just gets collected and put in, and then you sort of move on, and these things just become pillars of it. So it's yeah. such a mysterious process. I think that's why I love it so much. And hearing about other writers talk about it, I could just listen for hours about how it all works.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting, and everyone has different process, don't they? And I know you've spoken a lot about the decision not to name Martha's illness specifically um, and you, you've said that it's because you didn't want a specific condition to become synonymous with the book so rather than ask you about that although mm-hmm. we'd love to hear you speak a bit more about that decision but we wanted to also ask you about your decision to use a dash to block out where the you know the illness or the um, diagnosis would be because it's all sort of reminiscent of you know austin or the brontes so Hollywood. funny is it
2: those towns that they mentioned with b
1: and like two dashes it's yeah. always like intrigued me whenever i've read those books yeah. i've always been like why did they make those decisions and it's funny after reading your book i sort of went on like a deep dive to
2: try and find out more <laughs> about you it too. oh tell me there what you discovered
1: well there isn't that much it's basically just like because they were writing often in a or
2: adopting an autobiographical style it was in order to kind of obscure mm. you know avoid so it wasn't things. because it was actually autobiographical and there wasn't a something something regiment that she didn't want you to know that she well, was I talking guess, about it wasn't yeah oh.
1: possibly but I think it was like mostly to avoid that kind of
2: you know accusation almost yeah. um yeah but yeah it's super interesting so we wondered if you could definitely talk a bit about, well about avoiding that. accusation yeah I mean that's that's absolutely part of it um I, cause I had you know, stumbled into it. I hadn't done any research really, except the sort that you do when you're at university and you don't realize you're researching your future career by reading endless Sylvia Plath. Um, so that's all I really knew about it. And it was sort of later that I started, I mean, obviously I began with a condition in mind, but I hadn't read around that. And so later on when it was still named in there, I thought, oh, I should probably read up on it. And I began to do that and it just got me in knots. And it just made me think, Oh, I should go back and put this symptom in. And I realize I've overlooked this one. And it just wasn't, it just didn't serve the story. And I think, you know, you I've heard Anne Patchett talk about how if you do too much research, you start to feel like you need to get paid back for that by putting it all in the text. You want everyone to appreciate that you know these information, you know, these facts about space. And even though they don't serve the story, you're going to do four pages to, you know, show everything you learned about space. So I think there was that risk. I So then I was worried as well that I was representing it badly and inaccurately and in a way that would hurt people who actually are dealing with a condition like this, you know, to see yourself represented badly on the page, to hear Martha talking about herself in such negative terms, you know, that that would just feel like a gross, you know, crime against readers like that. But also it just, it wasn't about that, you know, it wasn't about that condition. And I think what I've realized afterwards as well, which is when you sometimes, you know, you have more clarity in what it is you've done, she's trying to solve a mystery. So if we knew the ending before her, it's sort of our story and we've almost got it over her. And I think we would have been you know all of the times that she was talking about what she did and why we would be like well cuz you had that you know and we would be like what well, mm-hmm. we would be witnessing and filtering everything she does through our understanding of this condition we would say well it's not like that or it is like that or that's why you're doing that and we would just know more about her than she knows about herself so considering it is meant to be that slow working out i just don't think it would have worked and and it has become slightly the most defining thing about the book. And I was really surprised when I was allowed to do it because I thought they'd say absolutely no way. And if they had have said that, I was going to ask it to be published anonymously because I was such a coward yeah. about, you know, being I would just hate to be confused for an expert, basically, sure. which is sure. not what I am.
0: Obviously, the Austen parallels, you know, we've just kind of drawn there with the the choice to, um, you know, choice to dash out the illness and what it is there is a lot of that kind of like Austin-like family dynamics in your book as well. You know, there's the Christmas scenes and, you know, Martha's Aunt Winsome, her cousins, you know, you've mentioned the nephews, Um, you know, you meet more and more of them and you see more of their layers and all that kind of stuff as the book goes on. And they kind of come and go through the narrative, you know, and you mentioned it's kind of meant to be like, from, you know, Martha's perspective, she's the only one who remains constant in the novel through her, her voice. Um, and how was it, what was it like building that cast of extra characters? You know, you've mentioned Ingrid, her sister being so integral to really mm-hmm. how Martha feels her life has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what was it like building that cast of characters despite even though you had to give them less time on the page? Yeah,
2: yeah. No, I, I loved, I love all of them individually and they all sort of, I feel like, brought something really necessary um, to her story and I think that that's one of the joys of it is just seeing these people go from you know a sort of flat space or pattern that you've put in there or just a holding you know um gap then to see them fill out is really exciting and that's where you get to deploy a lot of the things that you might have witnessed in other people like Winsome is the sort of you know she's slightly the matriarch who hosts these very formal Christmases at her home in Belgravia and you sort of you know I I guess I needed that character but it wasn't I didn't manage to unlock her until a friend mentioned I think it was his mother-in-law at Christmas you're only allowed to pass the platters anti-clockwise around the table you're not allowed to do it in the other direction and then you seize on that detail and you think oh that's Winsome and as soon as you have it then you know what she wears and what she looks like and how she would touch her pearls and what her house would look like and it suddenly just all falls into place. so um and they were the the pleasure you know the greatest pleasure of it was writing all of those characters and um I suppose as well, especially with Ingrid, because Martha is this narrator and she's not a reliable one, although she seems quite convincing in the way that she tells her story, that like she really means it and really believes it. But if you look beyond her telling, you can see the way they reflect her back to us. And it's not, that's where you can see it's not accurate. So she would explain, you know, she would describe herself as being an awful, awful sister, you know, who hates children. But when we look at her relationship with Ingrid, we can see that wouldn't be true because why would Ingrid be there? And that's not what Ingrid tells her back. And so I think they're all sort of that um they create that echo. Um which mm. is hopefully why we can tolerate Martha more than if she really did have terrible relationships with everybody or just no relationships. She doesn't have friends. I think that's the one thing why we needed so many family members. She doesn't sadly has no friends left by the time we meet her. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the other characters who's obviously so important to the book is Martha's husband you mentioned at the beginning when it starts their relationship is kind of disintegrating and then we sort of go back and see them fall in love um and you know their first meeting when they're teenagers and in that sense the book is very romantic but it's often unexpectedly romantic um and there's a bit towards the end where Martha remarks that if it was a movie the scene or the the events that are occurring would not be happening in a storage locker which I very much enjoyed as a line. Um, but we wondered how did you go about making a modern day romance and a romance that feels grounded in our lived reality where things are often complex and complicated?
2: Yeah, I think that my the way that I tried to do that, because you know, to say that you're writing a love story is kind of embarrassing because, you know, those words are so resonant and they sound so cheesy. And I just I could never have thought, oh, I'm gonna write a love story. But what a love story, especially told over a long marriage. I think the way that I made it not, well, I hope to make it not, you know, desperately sort of cheesy was to just keep bringing it down to the smaller and smaller and smaller moments in a relationship. So I don't want to see Patrick propose to her, you know, on a mountaintop. I want to see them watching television together and, you know, eating pizza and having those moments of intimacy that come out of just how deeply you know somebody and the shorthand that you develop and the way that you sort of tease each other. Um, And that's what I wanted to put in. So every time that I felt like it was getting too sweeping, I would just try and bring it, you know, down and down. And there's a, there's a point at which Martha talks about, you know, there are crimes in a marriage that are sometimes too great to apologize for. And so she just compliments him on something that he's made her for dinner instead, meaning to put into that, comment all of her shame and all of her regret and to communicate that apology without actually being able to say it Mm -hmm. um, which I think is probably more accurate in some ways than someone sort of begging for mercy from their partner when you're just in you know their executive home on a Friday night so I think that's what I hope to do and I also I just love long love stories that are told you know from when they met as teenagers in this case all the way to the very you know what seems like the end because I just think that, you know, the so-called meet-you is only one small part of it and it doesn't really tell anyone's full story. So I hope I hope that's what I've done. And um, yeah. I do love Patrick, despite his many flaws. You kind
0: of sort of vaguely alluded to the end there. So we also kind of want to ask you about that. Um, you know, at the end, the book is revealed to be a bit more uh, meta. The story is revealed, revealed to be a bit more meta than you would perhaps expect, not to, you know, give away why. So was the meta nature of the novel, like actually how it's taking place, in your mind as you were writing or again was something that kind of turned up as you brought Martha's story to an end and realized that might be how she was delivering it
2: Yes, I think because originally she was just telling her story and over time it developed into you know because we meet her at 40s and we go back to when she's 17 and we go all the way through to catch up again to that moment which is mm. her 40th birthday party which is where it starts and where sort of end of the novel picks up from there and goes on so that's the sort of technical underpinning of it but as I was writing it stopped being a straight telling of a story and much more of a confessional you know a long apology basically to Patrick that you know she was telling him this is a this is the you know 350 page um I sowed confession of the fact that she's finally seen and it's funny I sort of collected over a long time lots of pieces of actual physical ephemera which were stuck up on my wall just pictures and images and bits of conversation and poetry and all sorts of things like that um that got so variegated you know so many layers of it that what was underneath I couldn't see anymore and by the time I got to the end I took everything down to sort of have a little cleanse. And there was a piece of paper under there that would have gone up a year, you know, sort of ago by that time that just said on it, um, I didn't think it was my fault and I do now. And I don't know where... I got that from or where I wrote it down or was it a thought or something I stole from a book but I realized that's the whole story is Martha is realizing that even though she's blamed a lot of this on her condition and some of it is absolutely caused by her condition some of it is also her fault Mm. and the product of that sort of arrested development and so she comes to that realization and so then when it joins back up um and the the meta element that you so you know just validatingly call it um (laughs) you know that's kind of when we realize it's her telling and this is her speaking sort Mm -hmm. of to Patrick and then and then I didn't have an ending beyond the fact that I wanted them to just be in the same room so Mm -hmm. I don't know what happens to them after that um I just want readers I suppose to decide um and hopefully to kind of consider them again the next day you know after they've left the text to just wonder what might have happened to them yeah absolutely
1: yeah well I think we definitely found it a, (laughs) a satisfying ending it's yeah it's nice to be it's nice to be left pondering without having too many questions. I'm not being
2: mis- too miserable either. Well,
1: that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I had, I had got very invested by that point. As well.
2: <laughs> so nice. Yeah. And you do have to finish on a note of hope. I think if you've asked everybody, as I was saying, to come with you on this sometimes quite harrowing story. So I felt really hopeful. And as a person, I'd sort of restored my confidence over that time. So I think there was some real hope you know, that I was able to deploy in it. And there is a little line in there, which, um, you know, if, if for people who've read it, um, Patrick makes a reference to something called the Hotel Olympia in the final page. And to me, that's all I really need to know about where those two are going. So Mm -hmm. just a clue there.
1: Yeah, that's, that's very, very subtle as well. A subtle clue. (laughs) but I wanted to jump back quickly to something you said right at the beginning about how you Um, you have been working in the quote-unquote women's fiction, women's commercial fiction kind of sphere, and this book has kind of been lauded perhaps more as literary fiction, and I wonder what that has been like for you in terms of, you know, there are perhaps these um, categorizations of books that sometimes aren't very helpful, but you know your novel has been heralded across the world by all sorts of readers including Olivia Wilde who was obviously photographed on that boat with Harry Styles uh, reading the art I know high just, point of my career oh my gosh yeah but we yeah. wonder what that's been like kind of the response to the book and for you having kind of obviously been an author for some time and written different kinds of novels in the past mm. to kind of come mm. to terms with all of all of the craziness that's happened
2: Yeah, well, it's so funny, because I am just grossly pretentious as a person. So when I was writing, you know, and all my taste in fiction is literary. Hmm. um, And so when I was writing my first novel, I I thought I was writing literary fiction. Bless me, I wasn't. I was writing what was then quite clearly women's commercial fiction, which was sort of a revelation I had when I saw the cover that went on it. And I'm like, oh, Ian McEwan wouldn't get that cover. So anyway, (laughs) that was fine. I was fine about it because I was just glad to have written fiction because i would never done it before. And I was pleased to discover that I could at least write something that was publishable. Um, And obviously, you know, I had a conversation once with my publisher when that first novel, uh, sorry, the draft was going badly. And she said, you need to stop resisting what comes naturally to you, which is kind of humor, I suppose. That's what she was referring to. And she meant, because it comes easily to me, I undervalue it. And I think it's Cheap and you know it's it's just I need to strain through that to write darkness and to write seriousness and to have ideas you know with a capital I um, and she was like please just stop doing that and just do what what you you know write what you would naturally write and so I kind of kept thinking about that and when I started writing this thing I abandoned all thoughts of a genre and all kind of you know pretension towards writing literary fiction which is why it's so ironic that it turned out as supposedly literary fiction I think those categories are quite amusing and quite charming like you know at the same time as it has been called literary fiction Google Books calls it domestic fiction and I'm just like is that because it's in a house or why (laughs) have I earned that title because some of you know Kazuya Shiguru's novels are set in a house and I've never heard those ones described as domestic so I can only assume it's more towards my gender Mm. but I think that they I remind myself they don't mean anything because I don't really walk into a bookstore and think I want to read some women's commercial fiction. I want to read some domestic fiction. Um, You know, you just are drawn to a book because it's a book. Mm. And um, I think we all want to read from both. Like, you know, I don't want to go on holiday, um, lie on a sun lounger and read, you know, Crime and Punishment. That's what I want my Nina Stibbies or, you know, and that was a moment too. actually thinking about her. I took away on holiday one year, her to her novel Paradise lodge and then some really heavy duty type mantel you know and i adore hillary mantel but i was on a beach and i just read the Nina to twice and didn't get into the mantel you know so clearly those books and that kind of work matters just as much i mean i think Nina to is very literary as well but um so i think those categories don't mean anything but you just they're just required to locate writers i suppose so that you Mm. roughly know where they where they sit and then once that's done hopefully we can all ignore them yeah Yeah. you've mentioned some books already but are there any books uh tv shows films uh
0: pieces of you know pop culture in any category um that you've been enjoying that have inspired you or you'd want to shout out to us and our listeners um yeah is there anything that you want to talk about that you think that absolutely you you want to highlight to people
2: yeah well one of my conditions you know, my prerequisites in a friend is that they've read and loved Brother of the More Famous Jack. Okay. If they either haven't read it, they've got a chance. But if they've read it and weren't moved by it, then I we've got no future together. I just <laughs> love that book so much. It is just to me the absolute acme of perfection in terms of just a novel, but also what she achieves in it. And it's a novel that, you know, the protagonist loses a baby to still I'm um, sorry caught death and you come out of the novel thinking it's funny like remembering it as a funny novel but it's got so much depth and I don't know how she achieves that you know to put in all of life's tragedies and we come away thinking oh that was marvelous I loved that you know in a sort of cheery way so that's a really important book to me um, what I have read what I'm reading right now which is I'm reading it as a galley and it's coming in, I think it's January 2022 is um, Charlotte Mendelssohn's new book which is called The Exhibitionist and it mm. is amazing like as soon as you see it just sees on it in a bookstore it is so it's like being on a sort of theme park ride where you're terrified and euphoric and you just want to get off but knowing you'll get straight back on when you finish it's incredible I just oh. all of the emotions it's just I don't know how she's done it so that's mm. what I'm reading at the moment and then Anne Patchett's new essay collection I've been sort of clinging to it and carrying it around the house with me just dipping in a, you know when I need some inspiration as to what perfect writing looks like so that's mm-hmm. what I've been doing and then like the rest of the planet just watching season three of Succession even though it stresses me out <laughs> so much I just you have to watch it it's like we're all legally obligated to watch yeah. it so that's <laughs> in the watching department Cool awesome
0: thank you so much for talking to us it's been I mean again I, I say this at the end of everyone if you listen to us on podcast but uh, it's always so enlightening listening to authors talk about their books um I kind of wish that every book I read I got to speak to the author of because it just gives you so much more depth and understanding. Oh, of,
2: such a pleasure thank you so much for reading yeah. it and for having me and for all those lovely thoughtful questions I so enjoyed it
0: so much to meg for coming on the show an absolutely wonderful time interviewing her
1: i think if you haven't read sorrow and bliss hopefully that really made you want to read it because mm. we cannot recommend it enough it's such a great read and we talked a little bit about that meta element of the novel yes i do feel like that left me feeling that like i wanted to go back to the beginning and read it all again and and try and together yeah. yeah so yeah thank you so much to meg for speaking with us. We urge you to check out Sorrow and Bliss, which is available across the world, all good bookstores. There's an audiobook, ebook, however you prefer to consume your literature, you should be able to find it.
0: Now, uh, we're gonna move on to our chatty section of the show. I'm going to do a uh, probably a bit of a deep dive, probably too deep of a dive, really, into Taylor Swift's red Taylor's version. Um, we didn't do one about Fearless and we really.
1: Um, no, we didn't. We talked about folklore, I think, when the yes, folklore we came did. out. That's true. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think everyone is very aware. This is not a niche topic. But <laughs> Taylor Swift is in the process of re-recording her first five five. Records, Yes. Which she released under her old record label, Big Machine, yes. and which the masses of which she no longer owns the rights to. Mm-hmm. So this is a kind of business endeavor, which has turned into or Taylor has made it into a fan service celebration of her past mm-hmm. work. Yeah. And, but it does also ultimately have that business strategy at the forefront, which is she is hoping to make the old versions of these songs. Essentially unplayable. Really. Yeah, yeah, and certainly unlicensable. So whilst you or I, in theory, could choose to continue to listen to the past read, we won't, by the way. But never, we'd we'll never do that to you, Taylor. We would not do that. A movie studio is not going to license it. So I think that's, yep. that's the key thing. Mm-hmm. But. I think, you know, because she's an artist at the top of her game, she has turned this into this wonderful celebration. And, of course, it's coming on the back of Folklore and Evermore, the two albums she released in 2020, Surprise. Lockdown, lockdown, lockdown albums. albums yeah. which were very critically successful as well as commercially successful. Yeah. So, you know, she's been a massive star for a very long time, but I think she's probably at what has been her peak so far. So this is a be- so
0: long. She really
1: has, yeah. yeah. But this couldn't have come at a better time in terms of perhaps just... You know, she had a difficult few years. We can maybe go into this, and mm. you know, when she was perhaps like more publicly maligned. But this is a time when she has been very well respected by a lot of the music industry. So yeah, of course. With all of that being said, I know we've talked before about our own history with Taylor Swift's music, <laughs> personal, um, history. personal, history. <laughs> but. I wonder what your thoughts were on the Red re-release, Helena, before it came out. Mm -hmm. What were you hoping for? What were you concerned about, if anything? Sure. How were you feeling going into November 16th, whenever it was? Um, It was uh, November 12th,
0: actually. (laughs) A Friday. Uh, Well, I think for one thing, um, the re-recording, I feel like I would go and see a lot of the artists that I loved as a kid. Um, Miley Cyrus comes to mind for example Or any of those artists really And yeah. I would expect them to not be performing Their old stuff, Like I might get sure. one A few yeah, songs yeah. but really you would expect Them to be doing what is commercially viable At the time, their current stuff mm-hmm. And you know, Taylor Swift has up until now Up until actually earlier in this year been, been recording new albums And each one's been a new era for her Reputation really stands out for example As her like ultimate, like I've had enough Of the industry, mm-hmm. I've had enough of my life Of fame um, and obviously. Totally, reputation was quite different from her early stuff and different from her more recent things um so I I remember kind of being a bit like I wasn't really aware that re-recording could even be a thing really before Taylor was doing it early this year though of course I will mention that Jojo has already done this Sure, yeah. um she re-recorded The High Road and Jojo you know in 2018 because her label weren't able for licensing and and trademarking uh, legal reasons to release her early albums on spotify though they now have mm. so she's now competing with them but nonetheless she did take control of her music and obviously fast forward to taylor she made a big made a big splash about her problem with Scooter Brown who is the guy who has the masters and has now sold them to an mm. investment banking blah 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 um and I think that at the time I was like yeah go Taylor absolutely we completely understand why you're doing this do your thing I would love a new recording I will definitely listen to it what I didn't expect was it to be such a Peeling back of the reason why Taylor wrote each album, um, the music on it, the actual back behind the scenes look into other music that mm-hmm. she didn't put on the album. And it's been accompanied with so much other ephemera, to take mm-hmm. a word from Meg, that I love the way she used it. For example, with Red, the 10 minute version, the 10 minute short film of All Too Well, yeah, which we will, which get, we into. will get into. <laughs> um, and so I think that when I listen to Fearless, um, I will come to Fred in a second. I did think that one of the most amazing things Taylor did was to really bring back that spirit of the 18, 16, 17 year old girl who wrote that album In about talking about high school boys, the joys of like first love, you know, Joe Jonas comes into it. And I think that the album is so joyful and fearless, I suppose. Um, I didn't expect it to be such a nostalgic kind of like ride back down yeah. into Taylor's early music. And that's the point. I think, is that actually it goes beyond being a business decision, as you said. It goes into Taylor looking back at that girl that she was, the woman that she was, when she wrote those albums and bringing that story back to us. And I feel like Red, she's inhabited that woman that she was at 21, 22, 23 when she was writing the album, The woman who, like, I didn't realize how much of a heartbreak album it was. Mm. I didn't know the story behind any of it, really. I never thought about it until now, where she's re-delved into who she was when she was writing it, the pain she felt, why she wrote the album itself. I didn't realize it was like an Olivia Rodrigo-style betrayal album, like Mm. Sour is. I didn't even know that. So I think that's what's been biggest for me, has been realizing how much Taylor has opened herself up to going back to who she was when she wrote that music and I think other artists don't want to do that like Miley Cyrus hasn't really gone back to the Hannah Montana years that so she has sort of alluded to them I mean you don't see Adele, Adele does kind of go back but re recording yeah. actually is not just recording it is peeling back time and becoming the person that she used to be and I really feel right now Taylor is pure red Taylor <laughs> Like, she's not Taylor with a boyfriend who is very happy and living in London or whatever. She's gone straight back, like her 21-year-old self, and she is, oh, my gosh. So this is what I want to ask you about, right, is what about, not just, let's go back, we'll go to the music in a second, but what about the furor that's surrounded the coming out of all these stories about Jake Gyllenhaal, which purportedly the songs are all about? Taylor's come out, she's done the performances, she's very openly kind of been like, I know that I'm dredging the stuff all up and I'm fine with it. What have you thought of all of that? The dredging up of this like drama from 13 years ago.
1: Yeah, I think you're right in saying that Fearless is quite a celebratory album. So while there are songs about heartbreak on Mm. there, they're mostly quite joyous and I think you know there was a few jokes when they're about uh, the Joe Jonas stuff where, Sophie, like, Turner, Sophie yeah. Turner was like oh it's a bit of a bop you know there's the <laughs> song that was the new song Mr Perfectly Fine which was on that one one of the vault tracks which mm. was supposedly about Joe Jonas but I think this is obviously a different beast because we already knew that a lot of these songs really are quite gut-wrenching yeah. all too well as I said we will get into it we already knew that that was um, a song that really tore at your heartstrings yeah but I think there has been a lot of conversation as you say about who is the album about and obviously people who perhaps don't really kind of understand what's going on with the re-record yes thinking that she's just randomly written a 10 minute song about <laughs> someone she dated 10 years ago yeah. um, but what I would say is that I think in 2020 through Folklore and Evermore Taylor showed us that she can write not only songs based on her own life. And we already kind of knew that because I think a lot of her songs, it's a little vague as to who she's actually. Or embellished about. and yeah. Embellished and kind of maybe taking scenes or moments from her life and running with them but they always felt like kind of grounded in her reality whereas there are songs on those two albums which are just evidently made up made up yeah. and she's kind of created these whole worlds and i really love that i've always loved her storytelling yeah. and red is an album that is full of those stories and images obviously the red scarf being the iconic one Ugh. but there there are so many moments like that which she alludes to and and that you really visualize and i think she is as you say, inhabiting her twenty-two-year-old self, but it's almost like she's playing a character. Yeah. Because we know that she, well, she seems to be happily settled with Joe Alwyn, maybe living in London, as you say. What is it like in Hackney in the afternoon? <laughs> Jordan <laughs> yeah. around. That's not her best song, I will say. London Boy, <laughs> but you know. it's fun. Uh, But yeah, so I felt like she is she is re-inhabiting that former self, but with a degree of hindsight, which she also brought to Fearless. Mm. But it feels to me more like, yeah, she's kind of playing a bit of a character. Like you can't sing 22 at 31 and not be kind of like, you know, aware that that's obviously not your current life. Sure, yeah, of course. So that kind of works for me. And I, I know there has been, well, there has been some talk about some of the songs resonating differently because of the time that's passed. And for me, as someone who's always loved taylor's ballads and her kind of I, I really love folklore and evermore like that's very much my kind of music i quite like that she brings some of that sort of sentiment and some of that um tone to red which mm. was already very much there yeah but i know i was speaking to someone who was saying that um they felt like i knew you were trouble and 22 and we are never getting back together don't hit as sonically hard as they did initially. Sure. And I i kind of then listened again and I was like, I can kind of see what you mean because I think some of her anger, some of her like pure rage rage has been tempered <laughs> yeah. over time. And while she's trying to kind of revisit that, it's obviously going to feel a little bit different with the degree of hindsight. Yeah. But for me that's fine because I think what what we gain through that degree of hindsight with in lyrics such as you I get older, but your lovers stay my age. Mm. I think think it's very interesting as well.
0: I can't really work out Taylor's motivations, really. Like, I mean, aside from the fact that I know that she. Obviously, I know she's gotten over, you know We can only speculate as to what happened I mean, you know, there is a lot of Kind of pretty heavy clues But (laughs) nonetheless, like, we can only speculate And Mm. I think Taylor knows this And uh, there's a lot less seriousness or maliciousness to it Than I think that people would suggest You know, I saw an interview with her Where she, I think she was on Jimmy Jimmy Fallon Mm -hmm. Where I think he asked her, like What do you think the people who this album's about Think about this? And she's like, honestly, I didn't think about What their reaction would be So obviously, for her and perhaps she is a bit entitled, I would say, to be able to do this, to be like, it's not about anyone. Like, I know I wrote it about someone, but now it's moved away from that. Now it's about my re-recording. It's about the music. Like, people are still talking about Hall, for example. Like, he is still being affected by that. So I think it's a bit naive for her to say, oh, if she would suggest, like, oh, it's not really meant to be, like, dredging up the past. Because inevitably she is dredging up the past. But I think that... I agree with you definitely. Like there is a lot more that Taylor's able to do with those songs now. She's reflected on them all too well, obviously being the most important one. I never really thought about all too well beyond just like a sad song. That is my father's favorite song. Spoiler, <laughs> um, you know, a sad song about I don't know, a, a, you know, a relationship that's that's gone. Or um, yeah, I never thought about too much what actually happened, and now she's come up with the film which talks a lot, I think, which shows a lot of the story or her telling of it is like being with an older man and the problems of just like them being a different stage than you, them Mm -hmm. seeing things differently to you, you being so in love or so enraptured that you don't really think about the consequences of what you're doing. Um, And I think all too well, the idea of remembering and the idea that she constantly is repeating actually in that song, I'm remembering, I definitely remember it this way.
1: I was there. Yeah, I was
0: there, it was real actually about you know the realities of being in love with someone even if they don't feel the same or a relationship being something you thought it was it was one thing but it was something to someone else nonetheless you are completely valid and it feels mm-hmm. like to me that she, going back to that album you know she and in the moment i knew as well is one of them and also like the sweetness of come back be here which i think is alluding to another relationship she gets into after the one in all too well mm. we're not gonna i'm not gonna you're smiling at me so I'm, gonna talk, I'm, <laughs> not gonna, I'm not gonna talk about it um i think a lot of it actually comes to taylor saying and what she's doing now is being like i am valid i am here the feelings i felt at this time were valid i'm not necessarily saying anyone's anything bad to me or wrong i'm not going after them but i was i felt this it was real and this whole album actually is i felt this and it was valid you know I think that that's what I started to take away from it a lot fearless is very like the joys of being 16 17 and the funny things and mm. the 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 emotions you feel but all red feels a lot like Taylor coming back to it now is like yes this is all valid I felt this way and I'm not ashamed of it and I'm not afraid of saying that like I believe this relationship with an old man doesn't matter if you think it was a bad idea or not I still loved him and uh, it was bad, but I still cared about him a lot, and I still want to ask these questions: of did it mean that way to him, and why did he not think about me, and why did it go so wrong? You know, and people have said to me they feel bad for her boyfriend, like, and I'm like, I really that's the point. Like, you know, these things stay with you, and she's not afraid to go back.
1: In the All Too Well short film. So the sort of Taylor character is played by Sadie Sink oh, of Stranger Things fame, um who's great in it. But you know, in that moment where they have the argument, yeah. She doesn't necessarily express her emotions Particularly well Because she's young Because she's kind of yelling at him And she's angry And like You know it's like he
0: There's thing in the moment Where he throws the keys on the ground To the car And then he's on the phone He's shouting And you see that I mean I'm interpreting Sadie playing it As like she just doesn't know what to do Yeah Like how do you deal with somebody Who at this point you know, in the story is 30 something and you're 19, mm. you know, the age gap being at least 11 years. Um, They, ha- you don't know how to emotionally deal with someone like that. And they don't know how to deal with you. Like, you know, um, Dylan O'Brien's character, you know, says, I think you're making yourself feel that way. You're being, not even you're being paranoid, but, you know, you're seeing things that aren't there. Mm. And, you know, he views, he's kind of calling her childish. And while the gaslighting is also real, I think that there's that element of youth and, you know, uh not taking it so seriously but to looking back and kind of being like i was this i i, so I felt and it was real but she was also 19 20 21 and this was happening so
1: yeah. and i think know. she's again just interested in storytelling yeah and obviously this was an example this was a way of her exploring directing and writing you know obviously she's always written songs but she's written the dialogue that they perform in that scene yeah um and she's also obviously you know got these songs from the vault and also the all too well 10 minute version yes. which is an expanded version of the original song so the original song was never a single all the singles from this album were the hits that we mentioned earlier mm. like i knew you were trouble etc the kind of more clubby songs that i very much remember yeah
0: commercially valid playing, in like playing, what 2012 yeah playing yeah. in
1: bars and clubs when we were at uni at that point um all Too Well was not a single, but obviously became very beloved among Superhead. Taylor's fans. Yeah. Um, and she's got all these added lyrics. I want to ask you what you think about the lyrics, uh, the added, the new ones. I love them. Yeah. And I love the 10 minute version. And I think for me, I, I also love the other version as well, but I, I feel like at the moment, I'm very much gravitating towards the listening to one. the 10 minute one yeah, over the five minute one. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about it as well as the lyrics is actually the, um, arrangement I guess yeah. So it's produced by Jack Antonoff And I feel like it has this kind of reflective yeah. Feeling to it which I really like Whereas yeah, yeah. the I think the original one is a bit, bit More angry again a bit more kind of um, uh, And more just like White Horse You know White Horse mm. It's more White Horse
0: in like classic Like they've turned up the, the, the they're, 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 Electronic synthy um Guitar bit, which is like the sad melody, they turn up the sadness and the more like melancholy. I think in all too well, what in the for, ten minute one? No, yeah. in, okay. no, in the in the the shorter one. Oh, okay. In the ten minute one, it feels much more like a like a you're sitting. I hate saying my singing on a campfire a bit cliche, but it feels a lot more like someone on a guitar on a piano, kind of like storytelling song. Yeah, like the instruments aren't so prominent. It's more the words. You know yeah. what I
1: mean? Yeah, and I think. It ends then with that very like she's just like it was real I was there, yeah, it was there
0: in wind and Sacred hair prayer. i was there
1: <laughs> <laughs> but like it becomes very mellow towards the end which i really like because it and again i think for the te- for the 10 years on situation it's like if you started reflecting on something that happened to you 10 years ago and you probably like went deep i don't know you read your like teenage diaries <laughs> and you, you've delved in there but them. you know then afterwards you would have that moment of being like okay that was real, I felt that, but also that time has passed. Yeah, sure. So sure. that's one of the reasons I really like that. But I also love all those extra lyrics. I particularly like the one where he's like, she says, You who charm my dad.
2: Jokes. self-facing
1: jokes sipping coffee like you were on a late night show yeah and, and I mean, then she's the dad, a gift, you know her she? dad like watched her waiting at the front door for him to come like that was such a when I listened to that it such a gut punch you know but um yeah all of those lyrics I think really add to the story
0: yeah and I thought to myself how can I mean I, I shouldn't I shouldn't have been surprised but 10 minute version of all too well I was like what like how could that work but I did think I remember listening to it and then just being like wow wow because like the the depth of the storytelling ability is just crazy what she I, I never thought that you would want a 10 minute long song like a ballad but the storytelling it becomes almost like poetic like yeah. those epic poems yes yeah. um, that's what it feels like to me it's like singing the singing the iliad you know um yeah and I think she it's really really good uh particularly she's added a slight new musical bit a new melody to it so it makes it feel a bit fresh but it's like she's widened the gaps added so much more in mm-hmm. and I remember listening to it and at the end I finished it and I was like that was amazing like wow, that was crazy just because the amount of small emotion and story and depth she's able to give you know I think one of the lines that stuck with me is you know um coming back a soldier half her way like referring to like the mental distress it's just it's just it just shows you i think what is taylor's skill in the end like why she's so famous and why she's so good is she is really good at telling stories through song that is her lyrics you know, it's her lyrics yeah. that really work And she has a real talent for it
1: I do enjoy lots of the other Volt tracks as well I like the one with Phoebe Bridges, Nothing New
0: Yes, I also really like I Bet You Think About Me
1: Yes, yeah, and of course she did that fun video for that as yes, well yes. Directed by Blake Lively, very
0: intriguing Yeah, who, I mean, I mean we knew she hung out with Blake Lively Because we saw her
1: We did, back in the Tom Hiddleston,
0: Hiddleston days. days Um, But yeah, so As we finish, uh, I now just want to speak now To be we're recorded. Well, speak well, now, next. So, 1989 is going to be next. We know. This. I reckon
1: that she's not that because one of the things with this Red re-record is it got a lot of buzz because she also did a lot of press. Like she sure. did, she did the late night shows. She went on SNL and sang the 10 minute version. Oh, so, so so amazing. Um, so I don't think it depends a bit what she wants out of it, and how, and maybe she will approach each album slightly differently. And I think maybe Red is one of her favorites potentially.
0: I do think it's one of her standout albums
1: so it's possible she might push some of the others out slightly differently but i think there's definitely a world where 1984 is a spring summer or yeah 1984 (laughs) 1984 george orwell's new album And 1989 is like a spring summer situation yeah i feel Um, that you know i think maybe she'll want to give red room to breathe it's really exciting to know that we have all these songs, all these albums coming up, and yeah. what I, I think you know you mentioned at the beginning how artists are often hesitant to revisit their past and to perform their old hits and I do love that she has I don't think she's ever necessarily been hesitant to do that she's always played all too well yeah but she, it's just the fact that she like she loves her old music she's not ashamed of
0: it like I think some artists are like oh I did that ages ago and it wasn't my style or I was being sort of pushed into it by producers mm. and Taylor's like no like I love my old self I love my old music
1: I love the fact that she's doing this So she must have um you know in every album she must have at least one song where she's like oh I kind of wish I'd changed I could change this lyric or I yeah. could. And Obviously, yeah. with the Vault song, she potentially does have the potential to do that. But with the ones where she's trying to just basically reproduce a carbon copy, she has to reproduce that copy. She so yeah. it can't always be an easy task, but it's certainly um, one that has already produced a lot of creativity and excitement. So yeah, I'm excited to see sparks what flight, comes next. Sparks Flight next. It uh, could be.
0: I mean, I love Fearless and Sparks fly. I mean, I keep saying Sparks File Speak Now. Let's just confirm the actual name of the album.
1: It's called Speak Now. Is yeah. it? I think Sparks, Fly Sparks is Sparks a song on yeah. it Yeah
0: Speak Now I, I, I think I love Fearless I do But I think Speak Now Is my favourite album mm. Particularly because It's got Sparks Fly Speak Now Great songs on it Yeah <laughs> um, But yeah
1: Overall Taylor yeah.
0: An, uh, true. I mean, I always knew she was an icon.
1: But I'm I'm glad to see her get the recognition on a wider scale. I mean, as yeah. I said, she's always obviously been extremely successful. So I'm not trying to imply that she was some like, you know, she was in trouble. <laughs> yeah. That's obviously not the case. But it's it's nice to see her do these this on her own terms and seem yeah. to be enjoying it. And, you know, for something like Red, which you know, she was only 22 when it came out, she wasn't fully formed as the kind of pop superstar that she is today. The fact that it's being kind of like Looked over again by yeah. music, the music industry, and by music critics, and seen favorably is obviously a nice moment yeah. for those of us who've been there from the beginning. I
0: know two Taylor stands. Yeah. So back to that. Whenever the next album comes out, and that's us finished. I think. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Meg for coming on the show. Absolutely loved her book, *Sora and Bliss*. It is available in all good bookstores around the world. So go out there, get it. Read it and let us know what you thought of it. We are available to be talked to on our social media platforms, which is uh, at realllw on Twitter. Lovelaur's watched on Instagram, and then we also have a business email watch at gmail.com, where you can direct any business inquiries, uh, guest pictures. we love to see them, and also just generally any questions you have for us, go for it. Do tell.
1: We also want to give a big thank you to Alex Eggy, who is at an Eggy a day on Instagram. For the amazing logo. You can also check out her Instagram details in the notes for this podcast episode as well.
0: Thank you very much for listening. Um, and yeah, we will talk to you soon.
1: Bye. Bye. Bye.